Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. It's good to see you all here. And let's pray as we come to the word that the Lord would speak to us, move us, and sometimes just put ideas in our heads. Let's pray. Lord, we want to yield ourselves, our thoughts, our minds, our hearts to you. Let us hear what you tell us through your word and what it means in our lives, how it can take flesh in us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Today's sermon is entitled, Kingdom Come with a Question Mark. You know, sometimes, sometimes Jesus' disciples can be jaw-droppingly stupid. Just is. You know, from the beginning, Jesus had to clarify his calling. You know, the devil appears to Jesus and he has three options. He presents three options. He can make bread in the wilderness like Moses did, to fulfill the hopes of the Pharisees who were waiting for another prophet like Moses. Or he can leap from the temple pinnacle and float down into the temple court like a messianic priest from heaven, you know, like the Sadducees were hoping for. Or he can make a pact with the devil and take over as king of the world, like the zealots wanted another David to do. Jesus rejected all three options. No earthly lawgiver and prophet in that sense. No earthly temple priest. No earthly kingdom. Instead, Jesus used the title Son of Man. The Son of Man. It's the only title Jesus uses of himself. This is a term from the prophecies, as I'm sure most of you know, of Ezekiel and Daniel. The Son of Man could mean, like Ezekiel, an earthly prophet who suffers shame and abuse for the Word of God. As well as a heavenly ruler as we find in Daniel, a heavenly ruler enthroned by God at the end of days to judge the nations. And Jesus understood somehow he was called to be both, both. He's the earthly son of man who has no place to lay his head, a suffering figure who's going to be maligned by his enemies who's going to be betrayed and killed and give his life as a ransom for many. But he'd also return suddenly, unexpectedly, without advance warning, with power and great glory to take his place beside God as the heavenly Son of Man who executes judgment over humanity. So Jesus couldn't make it any plainer than that, 
You know, first must come unthinkable earthly suffering, and only later would there be unimaginable heavenly glory in a heavenly kingdom. Now, the disciples, like Jesus' disciples in every generation, and I must say, in every congregation, they hear only what they want to hear. Are you familiar with that? I mean, I know every, probably every wife in here would agree with me when it comes to her husband. Uh, but unfortunately, that's for all of us. We hear what we want to hear. And what they want to hear is unbroken triumph and success. Well, I hate to tell you, but anyone who comes to you and preaches a gospel of unbroken triumph and success is lying and does not know or understand the way of Jesus. The disciples sure don't understand. I mean, they want Jesus to establish the kingdom of God on earth, preferably here. And, well, how about now? When Jesus then promises the 12 that, who left everything to follow him, that they would one day sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, well, now that they hear, right? That they hear. And, and we know that because just a little later, James and John, now Matthew was kind enough to say it was actually their mother. I think he's just covering up for them, you know. But they asked Jesus if they could get the, the two seats of the highest honor and power right next to him on either side of his throne. Can we get the two thrones that are closest to you? Now, we're also told that the other disciples got angry with James and John over that, but I figure it was only because they didn't think of it first. And the closer that Jesus gets to Jerusalem, the more excited the disciples get. Because, you see, Luke tells us, and let me quote him, he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. You see, the disciples, here after three years, they still think Jesus is simply going to get more and more popular and more and more powerful until he sets up his kingdom now, a political reign on earth, and everything's going to be hunky-dory. For those that don't know, hunky-dory is a technical theological term, you know. <laughs> and then what comes? The betrayal, the torture, the cross, three days of grief and confusion. We read how the disciple Cleopas laments 
Uh, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. You know? You see, Cleopas doesn't get it. He still doesn't get it. Jesus does redeem Israel by giving his life as a ransom for many. But that's not what Cleopas and the others were hoping for. Jesus was supposed to turn Jerusalem into a messianic utopia. Easter morning dawns. We are, by the way, still in the season of Easter. Easter morning dawns. The Savior appears to his shocked followers. For 40 days he appears here and there, over here, until the time comes for him to depart, to ascend to heaven. He leads them out to Mount Olivet, and then comes, then comes, well, then comes what might well be the most blockheaded question in the whole Bible. I want to read it from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. You probably will have read this verse a lot, especially in a congregation like this, because that's where Jesus promises he's going to send them the Holy Spirit. I want you to look around that a moment. Next week is Pentecost. I'll be talking about the Holy Spirit next week. Today I want to look at what the, the, what the disciples ask. So, starting Acts 1, verse 3. <clears throat> After his suffering... Jesus presented himself alive to his disciples by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you heard from me. For John baptized with water... But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And he replied, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was going up and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who's been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. May God bless to us as reading. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Now, do you hear what the disciples ask? Did you notice that? Did you hear it? 
Jesus, are you at last going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Guys, in spite of everything Jesus taught them about power and servanthood, in spite of his suffering and death, in spite of his even denying before Pilate that he was to be king of an earthly kingdom at all, the disciples still are expecting him to create a political kingdom on earth. Ah, guys! For 40 days, Jesus has been appearing to them teaching about the kingdom of God, Luke tells us. And yet, Jesus has made no move to set a political revolution in motion. That alone should have been a clear signal. But no, in these final moments, they ask their most burning question. Are you, Lord, are you setting up the kingdom of Israel now? Are you taking your earthly throne now? Are you at last going to set us on those 12 thrones beside you now? How can anyone be so dense? You can only shake your head. No wonder Jesus was ready to ascend and get out of there. I guess one, just as a comment, one of the reasons that Jesus picked people like them, just like for the same reason Jesus picks people like you and me, was if if God accomplishes anything through us, well, it's obvious it had to be God. Right? Okay, today, today is Ascension Sunday in the church calendar. It's the Sunday following Ascension Day, that was Thursday, when we celebrate how 40 days after Easter, Jesus ascended to heaven in the sight of his disciples. And so that was on Thursday. And so the immediately following Sunday, we, if we don't have a service on Thursday, then we, on Sunday we celebrate Ascension Sunday. It's a pivotal event, absolutely crucial. The evangelist Matthew tells us that there on the mountain, moments before his departure, Jesus assures his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And the Apostle Paul quotes an early creed how Jesus becomes, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And he also quotes an early hymn we heard it earlier from Philippians, how Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, 
every knee shall bend and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. As Lord, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, until he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and every power. That is, in the ascension comes Jesus' enthronement as Lord and judge of heaven and earth. This is his coronation as the King of kings. Do I hear an amen? amen? We remember the ascension every time we say the Apostles' Creed. You know, that's one of the important points of doctrine in what we call the second article of the Creed. You know, where right after the third day he rose again from the dead... What comes next? He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's one thing. He ascendeth and sitteth. That is, in his ascension, Jesus Christ takes his place as the appointed Son of Man and ruler of creation. The Reformer and founder of Scots Presbyterianism, John Knox explained it this way in his Scots Confession. We do not doubt that the self-same body which was born of the Virgin was crucified, dead and buried, and which did rise again, did ascend into the heavens for the accomplishment of all things, where in our name and for our comfort he has received all power in heaven and earth where he sits at the right hand of the Father, having received his kingdom, the only advocate and mediator for us, which glory, honor, and prerogative he alone amongst the brethren shall possess till all his enemies are made his footstool, as we undoubtedly believe they shall be in the last judgment. Ascension Day... And Ascension Sunday is really, it's really the most political and the most, in some ways, subversive day of the church year. You know, the disciples are correct in thinking that Jesus is getting ready to take on his kingly power, but they're looking for it to be realized in the wrong place and in the wrong way. He, they're thinking very narrowly about their nation or about earth. Rather, the Son of Man takes his place in heaven at the right hand of God, the Ancient of Days, and the, co and the conquest of the rebel powers of heaven and earth begins. It is a cosmic kingdom. It is a universal reign. It is the conquest of everything. With this, we arrive at one of the most debated issues 
in Christian theology. What is the relationship between the authority of Christ and the authority of earthly rulers? You can see how we get there, right? How does the gospel relate to politics? Now, you may have been taught, as I was, that in polite company you should never bring up the controversial topics of religion or politics, right? Well, the ascension of Christ to, earthly, to heavenly power raises both of those topics, religion and politics, in an urgent and unavoidable way, right? Jesus never comes as polite company. Glancing through the commentaries by some of the early church fathers from the third and fourth centuries, I looked through Chrysostom, Ambrose, Lactantius, Bede. Not one of them, not one of them picked up on the disciples' question. But then, you know, they lived in a day when Christians had no political influence and they could not imagine a time when they might. Okay? Now, later, when the Catholic Church became an institution vying for political and military power beside earthly kings and emperors, well, you know, they didn't see the disciples' question either. And you know, pope after pope figured, well, Jesus is Lord of lords, so the pope should, in his name, hold sway over the power and policies of earthly lords, too. Centuries of Christians proved just as dense as the first disciples. And that despite Jesus' unequivocal teaching and despite his answer there on Ascension Day. Oh, my goodness. Now, the reformer Martin Luther, he did take this on. But keep in mind, Luther depended on the safety and support of strong Protestant nobility, on strong political leaders of his day for his own life. They were protecting him. And so he shaped what is called the doctrine of two kingdoms. The doctrine of two kingdoms. See, not only am I going to get polite people mad at me, I'm going to get the Lutherans mad at me too. That's okay. You see, Christ rules for Luther. Christ rules a spiritual kingdom in heaven, and therefore he is Lord over the church on earth. But he has relegated all earthly political power 
to human rulers. You know, along the motto, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Now, the weakness of Luther's two-kingdom doctrine showed up during the Third Reich when the Nazis exploited every excess of power in the most inhuman ways while Christians sat back and did nothing. Now, reformer John Calvin also recognized the two different forms of authority, that is, Christ's spiritual authority over believers in the church and the God-granted authority of earthly governments, but he would not separate them. I mean, if Christ is Lord of the whole world and the cosmos, then he is the Lord of earthly lords too, right? So he said governments are permitted by God. You know, we have to be organized, some organization. And so they have God-given responsibilities on behalf of their subjects and will be held accountable for what they do with the power that's been entrusted to them. Rulers, governments, presidents, whatever, will be held accountable before God. Now, it's the task of Christians to preach and to live the gospel and, in the name of the gospel, to hold their leaders' feet to the fire to be about what God requires of them. Right? Now, by the way, that can get you in trouble. I'm just a word of warning up front. So while the Lutherans would acquiesce in the face of tyranny, Presbyterians historically would protest and, if need be, revolt. You know? We even did it once. It's called the American Revolution what uh, King George III called the Presbyterian Revolt. You see, it's in our theological DNA. It's in our DNA. Now, Calvin identified six responsibilities entrusted by God to earthly governments. Six responsibilities. There may be a test on this. I don't know. Okay. It's the task of civil governments, one, to cherish and protect the outward worship of God. Number one, to cherish and protect the outward worship of God, like this. Two, to defend sound doctrine of piety and the position of the church. Okay. Three, to adjust our life to the society of men and, of course, of women. To adjust our life to the society of men. This is sort of social order, organization. 
Four, to form our social behavior to civil righteousness. Okay? Social behavior should conform to civil righteousness, and that's a job of government. Five, to reconcile us with one another, which ideally for Calvin was the role of the courts, to reconcile people. And six, to promote general peace and tranquility. You know, Calvin never envisioned a so-called Christian nation, and he certainly uh, did not believe that we could establish the kingdom of God on earth by human effort. We're just not going to do that. But governments should be friendly toward the church and its message of Christ and fulfill its mandate to promote good order and civil righteousness. Now, Calvin was not so naive to assume that always happens and that governments always do that, right? I mean, on the side, at the time, he still had a price on his head from the king of France. That's why he was hanging out in Switzerland instead. Why was Calvin such a realist about this? Well, you can't expect sinners in the world to understand the things of God. They're just not going to understand it. Look, if disciples of Jesus have a hard enough time understanding what Jesus said and what it means that Jesus reigns, how do you expect people that don't know Jesus to understand it, right? They just can't do it. So Calvin urged us to pray for our leaders who are often themselves no better than sheep without a shepherd. Sometimes God, you might want to note this, sometimes, Calvin said, sometimes God even allows us to have bad government to punish us for our own wickedness. Hmm? That is to teach us the difference between righteous and unrighteous governance and to spur believers to greater diligence, prayer, and courage. Do you hear that? Now, none of the New Testament writers, none of the church fathers, none of the reformers could foresee a day when simple citizens could elect their own governors and senators or even hold office themselves. You do live in such a society, imperfect as it might be, and therefore you bear a responsibility before God to act and choose wisely, discerning to your best ability the will of Christ and biblical guidelines. 
you bear a responsibility to hold the feet of our elected officials to the fire and require they fulfill at least Calvin's six most minimal mandates of earthly government, governance. The Son of Man on his throne shall hold them accountable, but he shall no less hold you accountable for how you did or did not make use of the privileges you have. Now, you and I, this might get some people mad too, but I'm a realist with Calvin here. You and I are not going to create the kingdom of God on earth. Not going to happen. We aren't even going to create anything like the kingdom of God in America. Why do I say that? Because all voters are sinners. And all politicians are sinners. So even at its best, all institutions of government are only institutionalized sin. Right? It's all going to be tainted. Calvin saw sometimes we will be blessed with good governance. Sometimes we will be chastened with bad government. Sometimes we have to speak up and declare what the Spirit would say to those in power. And sometimes... If we bear any power, any time, anywhere, sometimes we have to speak up and remind ourselves what the Spirit would say to us. When King James, yes, King James of King James Bible fame, King James was trying to force Anglican bishops on the, Presby on, on the Presbyterian church. And... Uh, and James challenged the Presbytery superintendent, Andrew Melville. He challenged him, remember, you are the subject of King James. And Melville impetuously grabbed the, the monarch by the sleeve with the rejoinder, but King James is the subject of King Jesus. Okay. Melville was sent into exile for it, but he made his point, and James thought better of his policy. We cannot create the kingdom of God, but we must testify to it with courage and persistence. Now, when the disciples... <clears throat> When the disciples ask if he's about to restore the kingdom of Israel, you know, Jesus at first puts them off. You know, only God the Father knows when that's going to happen. I've told you that already. Stop asking me, right? And then Jesus redirects their focus with starting with but. Don't worry about that. 
but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my what? Witnesses. Forget thrones and crowns for now. I need witnesses. Witnesses are what I need. People who will tell what they've seen and heard. People who, like Melville, will testify to the revealed truth with courage and persistence. Even if they go into exile or lose their head for it. Now, I want you to notice that's the very last time we hear anything from the disciples about any earthly kingdom. The last time. They never bring it up again. They never talk about none of the epistles, none of the rest of Acts. It never comes up again. <coughs> Excuse me. Because, you see... When the disciples, 10 days later, when the disciples get fired up to spread the gospel of Jesus, you know what happens? They lose all interest in reshaping secular society into a little utopia. That just gets pushed out of their whole attention, field of attention. Not that they don't care about people anymore. But they can see people, including rulers and leaders. It's not that the disciples don't care about people anymore, but they can see people for who and what they are. Creatures in bondage who need deliverance in the name of Jesus. And that includes rulers and politicians and emperors and kings. You cannot create a utopia with people in bondage. You will only create a system of bondage in the name of utopia. That's the problem with the communist utopia. You're trying to create utopia out of people in bondage. It doesn't work. They need to be delivered. And that only happens through Christ freed to become what God has purposed them to become. So looking over Calvin's list of six responsibilities of good governance, clearly we are in troubling times when prevailing ideology offends our deeply held beliefs and moral sensibilities. So what do we do about it? What I hear is a lot of complaining and tisk tisking, you know? I can't believe it. I was just reading the paper. This is, I can't believe it. This is so bad. I hear a lot of armchair strategizing about, oh, how we ought to take back this office or that office with, you know, more conservative or Christian politicians. You know, you hear that too. What I do not hear, and this is what burdens me, 
What I do not hear is people earnestly interceding for our elected officials, interceding for the governor, interceding for this or that legislator, interceding for that person that you absolutely despise when they appear on television, and I don't care who it is, interceding for them that they will come to Christ. You'd think that's where we'd start, right? Do we? No. Do we ever get around to it? Rarely. Rarely. Yeah, we can. We should write letters to lawmakers on policy. But what I don't hear is Christians giving them life-changing testimony. You see, when you've articulated policy, when all is said and done, it's still just policy. And that's not the gospel. We have something other people don't have. We have a message others don't have. We have a Lord others don't know. So what I want to see, what I want to see is a revival in the State House. Isn't that what Jesus pointed us to? You know, are you going to restore the kingdom? Guys, don't worry about that. You're going to be witnesses. That's where he redirects them. He redirects us. He wants us to be witnesses because what he wants to see, and I, hope what I, I know what I want to see, what I hope you want to see, is a revival in the State House, revival in the halls of Congress. Lord knows they need it. Revival at the top of the political parties and among their donors. And that is most certainly within your mandate and my mandate. We may never bring the kingdom of God to America, but we can and should at least bring the gospel. You know? And then, then we can see what the Lord's going to do with it. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy on your people, have mercy on this people, and have mercy on our leaders. There are so many who just don't know you. Even those who may have spent their lives in church, there are so many who don't know you. And they're not surrendered because they have no idea what that means. Lord, stir your people to be a witnessing community, not just about policy, not fussing about morals or ethics, but pointing people to life-changing power of Jesus Christ, pointing their leaders to Christ. And then, Lord, send your power to begin touching hearts, to be changing hearts, and change the tenor of our leadership through changing the leaders themselves to be more like the Jesus 
they come to know and love. And we ask this humbly and repentantly as your often rather dense disciples and servants to your glory and for your heavenly kingdom. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.